Hey, I'm Ruben from Dub. Welcome to Connection Loop, our actionable podcast about building businesses with daily human connections. Connection Loop features long form interviews with fascinating people in sales, marketing, and beyond. Enjoy today's episode and learn more about Dub at dub.com. And we are live. Hey guys, this is Ruben Dua on Dub's podcast, Connection Loop. Today we are going to be meeting with Marty Bickford. We are going to talk about this seriously, seriously cryptic, but interesting, but valuable conversation of having dialogue with your customer's brain. So Marty, if you could just start with a very short bio and let's get into the topic. Great. My name is Marty Bickford. Um, I've been in the startup world in Silicon Valley for just over 25 years. Uh, I've done six different startups. Most of them turned out pretty good. Um, couple of exits and most recently uh, left a position at an ad tech platform running customer success. And now I'm at a startup called Boss Startup Science, where we're helping founders um, navigate early stage uh, decisions. And what are some of those early stage decisions that need the most help, would you say? So <clears throat> a lot of that depends on the founder. Right, and their expertise, and and first-time founders uh, have a lot more uh, things that they can easily get wrong than than people have done it a few times. So what we see is that people step in the same mistakes over and over again. Um, one of the things that I think is is probably weakest. Right, we all know about concepts about you know sizing your market, market dynamics, um, and even things like that maybe a few years ago weren't as popular defining your ideal customer profile. Um, but I'd say one of the weakest things that early founders do whenever they are planning for an exit is they don't actually plan for the exit. So people can describe their customers in detail, right? Uh, their customer for their company could be described in detail as well. And in fact, the decisions that you make early on, especially as you start to uh, scale and get traction with your customers, you're making operational decisions, you're making funding decisions that will affect your ability to exit. And uh, not planning for an exit early on, I think, is one of the, the most common mistakes that I see. So it's, it's almost like a reverse engineering effort where we need to think about our ultimate goal and then kind of rewind back and <laughs> how it affects right. our daily and long-term decisions. Yeah, you know, we think it's complicated, but it's really mm -hmm. not. Uh, mm -hmm acquisitions are made based on a few drivers, right? And we understand, everybody can understand these drivers. It's not rocket science. You're either going to add to company revenues, right? And stay as a pure play and not affect operations a whole lot. You're getting bought because you're going to save the company money in some way, or you're going to increase their current operations because your customers line up to theirs, right? And, and one of the most important things is always getting the customer to line up. So, do you have a crossover rate already that will save you money or do you have an upsell opportunity? If you build your customer base uh, and spend years doing that, that customer base, how well it aligns to your eventual acquisition partner directly determines your valuation multiples. Mm -hmm. Very well said. Yeah. So, so important to keep those things in mind. Uh, no matter what size of business you are, because, uh, doesn't have to be Google that acquires you. It could be a company that's 10x your size, even a medium-sized business. So very, very important to remember that. Absolutely. Um, now, talking about the the customer's brain, 
and what their needs are, the challenges that they're going through, how we can find product market fit to provide so scalable, repeatable solutions to them to get them to become repeat customers and eventually evangelists. Talk to us about that process. How do we streamline that whole listening and then being proactive process? So <clears throat> one of the things I would say right after the bat, right, is a lot of people confuse efficiency for effectiveness, right? And this is not a process that we're that interested in um, getting the, we wanna get bang for our buck, right? We wanna do that in everything we do. But listening to our customers and all those steps you just described, um, they're not things that we look to create efficiencies against, right? This is where the value creation happens. The more time you spend with the customer, the better your business is gonna be. That's regardless of any stage of business. So this is not something that you try to get better at from an efficiency perspective. You try to, you try to carve out time for this on a weekly basis, right? No matter what size of company you're at. So if you're talking to your customers, right? And you get them to talk about things other than you, right? And, and the issues that you have together and you talk about things that are other things that are going on in their business, you get a much more holistic view of the customer, right? You've learned things that aren't just about will they use the product or your buttons in the right spot, but you learn other valuable things like where they go to uh, find out new information, mm -hmm. right? What are the, those are marketing avenues. So when we talk about product market fit, the, we, we have to understand the holistic customer because it's not just fit in terms of price. It's not just fit in terms of can, can the customer operationalize this for themselves, but it's also fit in terms of can you actually acquire those customers at a rate that's profitable, right? All three of those things have to go together. Yeah, and, and that alignment um, is finding that alignment oftentimes is the result of failure because it's where runways get burned up. It's where, um, you know, we get confused into this pattern of continually changing, trying to adapt to our customers and not sort of putting our flag into the ground on something. Um, yeah. It's where challenges happening happen from an economics perspective. Um, what would you say some tips are in terms of creating a, a strategy to, well, as Reed Hoffman says, says it, building the airplane while we're flying it. So, you know, they call it the valley of death for a reason, right? So a um, couple of minutes, probably not going to solve a whole lot of problems out there for people, but I do have a little bit of advice, right? And that is early on, um, you know, if you've, if you've worked in later stage companies where efficiency is critical, right? And, and shaving points off of things matters. You understand that productization of things is extremely important, right? So understanding what's in the box and what's not in the box, those should be very serious decisions, right? And it's one thing to pivot marketing messaging. It's one thing to pivot pricing and play with business models. When you, when you start overreaching into customization, right, you actually don't have a product and you don't have a, you, you might have a service, right? That you want to productize, you can build boxes around that too. It's just really important to understand where the pain is at your point in time. So how much, how costly is it for us to make a pivot? Pivoting 
in a Fortune 500 company is very expensive, right? Pivoting at a startup can be much less expensive. And like you said, you're going to hurt your runway. You're going to hurt your turnaround times. But those are decisions that may ultimately get you through that valley. So I would encourage pivots. The, the, the failure comes at failing to pivot uh, too late, right? You, you miss the opportunity. You burn the runway or putting all of your eggs in the basket. Like one of the things that's just drastically important at the beginning is optionality. Finding enough customers in that ideal customer profile so you, do, you know who to listen to and who not to listen to. And then you boil that down to the MVP, which should have a very clean definition, meaning they will actually pay for it, right? It's not an MVP unless you have paying customers. Otherwise, it's a prototype. So. You have to sell something, you have to box it in. And just as you grow, as you start to scale, those boxes should expand at a much slower rate than they do in the beginning, right? In the beginning, we're throwing boxes out and starting with fresh piece of paper, and that's the way it should be. Um, the other thing about uh, putting things into boxes is that people love boxes, right? Our brain is able to digest something that has boundaries. So this is not just true in one-to-one uh, -one selling and, and negotiations, but this is true in our response to understanding information. So if we can put something in a box and understand it well, right, then that becomes one of two things. It either is going to become entertaining to me and I'm curious, maybe there's something different that's changed, but it's not going to hurt me. I know how this box is going to operate with me, right? And when we buy new products, all the new ways that people, the startups are coming out for people to work, we're asking people to change, uh, not just change out one box to the other. We're trying to mess up all the boxes that they got, right? And that's a scary proposition. So boxing things in helps the brain not react in, in a flight mechanism without the lines drawn around your box. What ends up happening is the brain interprets this as either something that is extremely uh, interesting and I need to pay attention to it or extremely dangerous because our brains respond to uh, the, the, the threat of us over, over spending too much energy on analyzing something, right? So when we're asked to overanalyze and make, make assumptions and understand things that aren't clear to us, that's a threat. And the brain is old and it's literally telling us stop this. This is meaningless nonsense. You might get eaten by a bear, right? And if you're in a boring meeting, you can feel it. Your leg starts to, to bounce up and down. You start flipping with your pin, right? You're fidgeting. And what your body is telling you is get out of this room, move the body, get out of this, because the information that you're asking me to digest is a threat to me. Because while I'm trying to figure out this complicated strategy, I might get eaten by a bear, right? So we need to, to take care of our customers and make sure that they can understand what we're presenting and where those lines are, right? And that's not only benefit to us as a startup, but it helps our customers understand us as well. That was a very well, long answer. Yeah, well, no, I really appreciate that. And I think that... Um, couple of things that come to my mind when I think about this topic is number one is, you know, scarcity mindset versus abundance mindset. 
another thing that comes to mind is the idea of just my, generally being mindful. You know, um, if we find ourselves rooted in fear, rooted in greed, um, in, impatience, then it disallows us to do the listening that we need to do, to do the building that we need to do, to find that fit, that alignment that we need to do, to, to really map out a plan for longevity. I've seen too many people, and the reason why I'm qualified to say this is because I've been in this mindset, and I know what it's like to be desperate. And it's amazing how stinky it is. It's amazing how smelly that is, where people can smell it a mile away. But you know, the you know, the, uh, the the issue here to me is really um, how other people respond to us. Uh huh. Yeah. Right. So this is to me why why I've always taught my staff etiquette. Right? Etiquette is not something to be ignored. It's something to be indulged in because what it does is it actually signals to the other person that I'm not a threat. I'm someone that you can trade with. Right. And that's where etiquette came from was it, it helped us do trade. And so trade is, is it, we need we need a language that tells us I'm not a threat. Um, I have something that actually might benefit you from a business perspective. If I can't get to that, if I can't get that person's attention because I'm coming off as a threat and I don't mean to, then that's a problem. That message is never going to get through. We're never going to get into true dialogue. Yeah. I mean, can we trade together? You know, this, this goes back to some of the earliest, uh, you know, commerce driven, uh, you know, mindset mentality and, and realities, uh, many of which are, are still so relevant. Um, do I trust you? Can I trade with you? <laughs> Absolutely. Right. You know? And etiquette is a, just a mechanism for us to tell the other person, yes, you can, right? Without saying so. <laughs> right. Now, I'll just kind of uh, pivot the convo. Innovators are often scary. Christensen talks about the innovator's dilemma. He talks about this idea that when we are consuming innovation, when we are innovating, that we're taking risks that were um, potentially destroying trust. You know, driving Tesla, a Tesla 10, 15 years ago might have been a scary initiative. How is it that as innovators, we can bring people into the process, get them to trust us, understand that there's our lab coat is messy, um, our hair is messy, our goggles are scratched with foggle all in front of them because we're in the process of innovation and that we should not be feared and rather we should be accepted we should be uh, it should be understood that our goal is to is to help humanity in some way how can we build that rapport in a more positive way that, that's that's really interesting question because i i think you know there's multiple layers it, it, there's there's generational the way people acted and 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 it's it's you know probably more okay today to have you know a bunch of nose piercings than it was 20 years ago right so that should be overlooked. And by some section, it still won't be. Um, but what it is, is, is the messiness, the disheveledness is a signal that I am a threat, right? I don't care about your etiquette. I don't care about your norms and the way that you guys have been doing things for five years because there's a better way now, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe we don't need to, to address that. I, I do think that if things are authentic, if people are being authentic about where they're coming from and, and their perspective, and maybe it's just easier for me to wear the same shirt five days in a row, 
right? Um, <laughs> right. And that's fine, right? <laughs> I literally wore this shirt five days in a row and nobody <laughs> cares, right? Um, but that's not really a threat because it looks like a normal shirt, right? If yeah. the shirt said, screw your system, I'm tearing it down. Well, <sighs> maybe that's the message I want to get across. So yeah. I would say, you know, if you don't want to scare people, then pay attention to what scares people and don't do that. But don't keep from scaring people if your ideas are upsetting a big system and there mm -hmm. are people afraid of that. That should happen. That should continue to happen. I mean, look at look at the whole metaverse. Look at, you know, my kids think it's great and normal. Right. And then there's a whole piece of the, the population that is just afraid to even try to understand why people think it's important. People think it's ridiculous that it matters at all. Yeah. So that is just that's just a change that we got to get over, you know. Well, it's uh, so well said. You know, I, there's there's sort of this visual that I like to present, which I think I'm trying to remember which where I learned this from who initially stated this. But, you know, when you look at pictures of Jay-Z back in the day, what do you see? You see a lot of gold. You see a lot of bling on this neck of his. And he obviously in this photo, he's got a lot to prove here. OK, I've got wealth. I've got diamonds. I've got money. If you look at Jay-Z as a more evolved human being, <laughs> what do you see? You see a simple black T-shirt. Now, this T-shirt might have cost $700. That's not right. the point, though, is that what you see in, this, in these shots is you see a simplified man. You see a man that has nothing to prove. There's no bling. There's no gold. He's not even wearing a watch, actually, in any of these shots. And I think the point that I'm trying to make here is that oftentimes startup founders when they're in front of that group of VCs, when they're in front of that client trying to recruit people is that there's a lot of peacocking that happens. There's mm -hmm. a lot of spreadsheet millionaire that happens. There's a lot of chest beating that happens that says, I'm actually not totally secure with what I'm doing and I'm overcompensating with noise and with yeah. bragging and with bogus, frankly. And I think it's amazing because you will see some extremely successful people that are extremely humble. And it's really hard to do that because even though Confucius told us that smart people don't talk a lot, how does one get to know that you're intelligent without speaking? And of course, that's another conversation. And that has to be where it's other people talking about us <laughs> and hearing certain things because those are the best things that we want to have said about us, yeah. not the things that are said by ourselves, but rather from other people. All right. I think it's a great point on Jay-Z, right? And that's fun to look at. And, um, you know, the other wrinkle I'll throw in there as, you know, a guy who just entered my 50s, um, maybe it's age too, right? Like the peacocking comes along, I think, with youth, right? You're trying to find, you're trying to fit in with this group. You're trying to get them to accept what do you, you they're, they're trying to do something, right? Making an effort here to fit in. Uh, to be accepted. And and so I think some of that comes with youth and or lack of experience of, of a, in a circle. Um, but I did ad tech for a few years. And I'll tell you, the egos that I run into in startups got nothing on uh, e-commerce, man. So I, I, you know, and I think a lot of it comes from lack of confidence too, right? Which also just may be an experience thing. So I think the older you get, it's it's fairly see through, and it's also for me has become a lot more forgivable over the years. Mm -hmm. uh, like you know, 
they're not fooling anybody, but I'm not necessarily, uh, uh, don't really hold it against them. Right. Unless they're just a douche, right? Like, <laughs> you don't treat people well. That's one thing, right? Yeah. There, there can be a lot of peacockers who actually, you know, are good, kind-hearted people at the same time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think I've real I've just been reminded so many times that coming from a place of humility, um, especially when listening, is what allows our brains and our hearts to to connect. You know, it's that empathy. It's that compassion. It's that curiosity. It's not trying to prove something, but rather let me understand the challenges that you're going through. And that's one of the things that I, that I, as an entrepreneur and as a businessman in my 40s now, um, that is ta has taken me a long time to actually learn. It's to, to be that empathetic listener and to not move my lips, but rather to open up my ears. <laughs> well, Ruben, all that stuff you said is goes right back to, to the title, right? This is, if you can listen to your customer the way you just described, you're gonna get product market fit, right? If that's the per, if you can listen that openly to people that are the actual people you're gonna sell to, right? They gotta be the right person, um, but truly understand them from like a 360 perspective, then that's golden, right? And and it's not easy. Um, I think it's it's your your experience doing this gets you to a point where you can actually be that open. I, I, it's not easy to get people to open up like that sometimes too. So well said. So where can where can folks learn more about you? Social channels here. I have your LinkedIn profile. This podcast yeah. is called Connection Loops. So we're all about making connections. <laughs> yeah, I'm, you can find me Marty Bickford on LinkedIn. Um, okay. I'm at, on Twitter, I'm at Marty Bickford. On America Online, I'm Martin Bickford at AOL.com. But you can also, uh, the, the startup that we're doing right now is Boss Startup Science. Um, we're providing curriculum for early stage founders that takes you through the basics. Um, it's not available through our site. You have to go through an accelerator that uses our content to get access to it. But we're happy to direct you to some of those guys if you reach out. Amazing. That sounds really great. So we encourage folks to go to bossstartupscience.com, and then you can put your email right here. And then also take the time to make the connection. Connect with Marty on LinkedIn, search for his name. He'll pop up right there and make that connection. So Marty, thank you so much for, for the time here, for the insight, for the thought leadership, and um, we will be listening for you. So thanks again. Thank you, Ruben, appreciate it.